Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. everybody welcome to this episode of true crime and cocktails famous fatalities edition as always i am your host lauren ash and as always i am joined by my co-host s with the most s christy oxborough how you feeling uh you know uh better now yes um i have a uh small story for you oh that i've that i've been holding off on we've been in communication obviously um over the course of the weekend of course and i have not been telling you this because i wanted to save it for this moment oh, that's where we're at in our lives i love it so i had told you uh i had not told the people so they're gonna get in on this now uh i did a uh, full physical at my doctor's office that's right um and you know everything was fine the joke is when he was reading through lab results uh, and it was just like a, oh, liver function's fine. I went, really? <laughs> <laughs> Not the point. Uh, so he, we go over the results. Results are fine. We check everything out. Everything's fine. He looks in my ears. He looks in one and goes, looks good. He looks in one and goes, oof, bit of wax in there. It was the tone. He had a tone. My doctor is a slightly older gentleman. And he just looked in and went, mm, bit of wax. And I was like, oh, yeah. And immediately I feel shame. And I'm yeah. like, I, you know, okay. But he made me feel so bad about it that I went home and looked at my husband and went, okay, well, he says if you put like this stuff in your ear and like leave it for a minute and then like tilt your head over, let it drain out, the wax will be out. And so uh, my husband and I were like, oh, well, no. here we go. He, my doctor told me use olive oil. I did not want that at all. What? I, yeah. Uh, so I just said, no, I'm not interested. So we looked up things online and baby oil or um, mineral oil were options. 
So my husband had to run to a store. He grabbed some oil, was like, we're going to put a little in your ear. Um, and long story short, um, I ended up deaf in one ear for three days. Oh, God! <laughs> um, it, it, the joke is, like, we, we tried to get it in there. I had to go to a store multiple times to buy different, like, syringe-type <laughs> things for him to get it out of my ear. And what we think happened was at one point we ended up using warm water and I think we loosened it from where it was and got it so far out of my ear but not all the way so it ended up in my ear just enough to block sound (laughs) so it got to a point where I would go to sleep at night and if I was laying on my good ear I couldn't hear a damn thing no I couldn't hear the fan above our bed that I like so much and only one of us got up super early with kids on the weekend, and that's because I did, I could not physically hear them. Uh, it's better now. We've had multiple, like, me having to lay on the couch so that he could, like, squeegee crap out of my ear. But, like, squeegee isn't the word I was looking for. Suction? Syringe, whatever. Suction, yeah. It's It's been, it's been a few days, but I like that I was shamed so hard that I'm like, Let's just do this ourselves. Let's just home remedy this. And we did it so badly that I that I was deaf for a while. I don't know that this is on you. I, I think that maybe, like, um, you know, it's probably on the doctor, I think, overall. Like, I, I, I don't know. Like, I just feel like we all have wax in our ears. And I know that there's, like, sure. varying schools of thought about whether you should take it out whether you shouldn't i mean now they say you're not sure. supposed to use q-tips which sounds like a nightmare to me because i enjoy the sensation personally but um of course i i <laughs> i first of all first thing that came to mind is that you yeah. would love to know that you now have something in common with your boyfriend dave grohl uh because he is completely deaf in one ear from years of playing uh, of rock course. music and he has talked right. about how we, he has kids and he's like, if he lays on his good ear, he can't, he can't hear the kids. So that's the first thing that I thought of. He's like, I can nap through anything because I just lay on my good ear and I'm deaf in the other one. So that was the first that's thing. That's amazing. Yeah. Second thing is I've gone through bouts of deafness uh, for multitudes of sure. reasons. Um, I got a really bad ear infection once really really bad and i i actually do have permanent hearing damage from it i i went to a doctor and yeah got tested and everything and they're like yeah and you can't get it back that's the thing once you lose your hearing it's gone for good so what's good to know in your case is that it was just (laughs) it was just an iceberg of wax as opposed to actual damage yeah yeah but i just don't think that this doctor needs to be shaming people into taking things Uh. into their own hands i think that that's wrong uh, I feel like, is it possible that he was like, well, I've got to leave her with some sort of notes. Yes. And where it was like, I got nothing for you, so I guess. And you know what I think that's about? Misogyny. <laughs> <laughs> sure. You know? Sure. Yeah. All oh, this woman's got it together. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing's of note. Well, a little bit of wax in that one ear. Better deal yeah. with it. Well, the joke, it turned into... Uh, when I woke up the next day and was like, yeah, I still cannot hear um, oh, that's in terrifying. my left ear. And my my husband was like, okay. I'm like, well, so should I like go to a doctor 
to be like, can you get this out? But I'm like, go to somebody else. And he's like, well, what doctor does your doctor go to? And I'm like, and then I can look in his files and find out what waxes in his ears. He's like, no, I just... (laughs) You know, I like that you I, automatically. I, know, I took it too far. You, uh, no, but I like that you automatically were like, <laughs> I can get access to the files. And again, that's the confidence that you've gained over doing this show that I appreciate. Yeah, I mean, I would have to full like dress up, maybe some heels. Maybe I accidentally drop a pen somewhere. Who do I think is sitting in front of the files that I could distract them? It's not my husband. Well. So I'm not going to be able to distract someone that easily. Aren't you? But, I mean, oh, well, then I need somebody else to be creating a diversion somewhere. That's why we. And that's how I get access to the files. I light a small fire in a trash can. There it is. In a day. <laughs> That's the in, only in office. That's the only option. <laughs> in an office that nobody uses. So then I make it so that it's it's not going to go far. It's just a lot of smoke. <laughs> because maybe what I'm burning is the oil he wanted me to put in my ear. See, this is going somewhere. Yeah. This is going somewhere. This is like the sequel to Atomic Blonde. Bumbling redhead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'd pay to watch that movie. I'd pay to see it twice. I know you would. I know you would. And I, God, I I would be honored to be in anything that used to have Charlize Theron in it. Come on. Throne? Throne. How do we say that? Uh, Theron? Throne? Is it? Theron. Hmm. Blue Heron. Theron. (laughs) I don't know. Um, Wow. Well, that is a... Uh, disaster. I'm so sorry that happened. No, no, no. Oh, wow. One time when I was in high school, one time in high school, uh, I, all of a sudden, this is gross. Trigger warning, grossness. Uh, I, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, something felt like it popped in my ear and then I just had a weird liquid pour out. And, yeah, and I went to my mother and I was like, I don't know that this is good. And she's like, eh. Anyway, I I eventually saw a doctor and they gave me drops. I don't like the feeling of having no nope. right. I don't like a no. liquid going in there. It feels like it's it it feels wrong. It's like it's like yeah. uh, uh, it's, it's just not right. It's unsettling at best. Yeah. Um I'm also going to brace you uh because I know now that you've said um something you've you commented that your mother went eh, she's gonna respond with how she feels she actually re, you know reacted sure. in the moment um so you're gonna get a lot of those messages yeah i mean the day this drops in her defense i don't know that i was maybe verbalizing what had happened properly so i will sure. i will i'll own that um yeah. Yeah, and then once it was like, oh, this feels like it's a bigger problem, she got me medical care. So again, I, I won't, of course. Uh, yeah, I, I'll, I'll own that for sure. But I don't know how, I think it was that I was, I, and then in my own defense, I'll say, it's just, it's rare that all of a sudden you feel a liquid pour out of you, your ear when you, yes! you're not sick. And then also it's like, is it spinal fluid? Like, was I experiencing, (laughs) was that a sign of something else? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure there's going to be a medical person listening to this who's going to message us and be like, here's what it could have been. But I'm still alive, so I guess it wasn't brain fluid. But, you know, 
or maybe we can you can we lose a little brain fluid and still be okay i don't know i don't know <laughs> well what i like about this podcast is it's always asking the big questions asking the big questions getting yeah. the big answers you know what i mean that's what's nice yeah that's what's nice do you lose brain fluid over time <laughs> doctors go <laughs> How much brain fluid can I lose before it's a problem? Is it like a thing where, like, you give blood? Like, you can give so much blood and you regenerate blood. Can I regenerate brain fluid? Because if not... Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, if we can't regenerate brain fluid, like, what is our body doing? <laughs> I don't know how often we lose brain fluid, but... I think that's rare. I, I think it's probably only in the times of, like, severe head traumas. But I did withstand that's a true. head trauma in high school is the other thing, so... How soon, how, what was the time frame between that and the, it's it, out of the air? It's a good question because I don't remember. You don't remember? <laughs> uh, wow. This paints a picture. For those of you who are wondering, I, uh, I, I, you know, early, young, young Lauren's relationship with alcohol yeah. was what I would call experimental. Uh, and perhaps... Perhaps young Lauren had a experimental evening um, sure. where she experimented with a dangerous lover named Goldschlager. And uh, uh, long story short, I got way too drunk and um, fell and hit my head. Got a little concussion that fractured my skull, believe it or not. Um, yeah, not great. Not great. But it was one of those things where I never did that sort of thing. And I was like wanting to be uh, independent mature young lady and decided that that was how to be <laughs> an independent mature young lady which mm -hmm. of course it's not um but the good news is, is that i'm okay that's the good news of course yeah and I if i was don't... to play like a sport of some kind i should wear a helmet but that's a different story i don't know if anything mature happens with the term schlager in it <laughs> But 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 I I don't know any sort of European languages, so that could be wrong. The schlagers and the schnapses are very tough lovers to have. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. She was doing I well until do so she fell into the, the yeah. schnapps crowd. <laughs> I do also kind of like um the idea of you playing a sport. As an adult? Yes. Yeah, I do. You too. would be so competitive. I'd like to see something where, you know, like um, like a lacrosse oh. or something where you can run around, but you can also like hit people. It should be noted that when I was on a program called Super Fun Night, my character was a tennis coach and I had to play tennis in the pilot and I was bad. And so they decided when the show got picked up to get me tennis lessons. And so I took private tennis lessons the entire time we shot that show. They never wrote another tennis scene for me, so we never used the tennis skills that I learned, which was probably good because I never got better. And that's the thing that feels impossible, uh, is yeah. that the learning curve just wasn't there. So to your point, I do think something more team-based, group-based, where maybe just my yes. brute strength can be my asset would be good. I would also like to see you do like a roller derby. Sure. I would like to see that. Um, but also, I, in high school, 
took tennis lessons. Yeah, it was a, um, oh, I was just barely into high school, but it was one of those, like, my parents doing a, well, you have to have some sort of activity. Right. And I was like, I'm not interested. So they were like, well, here's the recreation guide for the city for the fall. Pick something. And I went through and went, yeah, it doesn't seem like a lot of running in tennis, I guess. So I picked tennis. It lasted um, just the one season. And then they stopped asking me to do activities. <laughs> so I don't know if I was great. Uh, there was a moment where the ball came towards me and I swung my racket and then spent a good five to ten minutes looking for where the ball went. It was stuck in my racket. <laughs> so there's, there's that. You got a snort from me. That's, that's rare. Um, I also briefly played tennis in high school because I had a big thing for Pete Sampras. Of course. Thank you very much. Uh, Ash Blanche is here. Um, and I, I, I had maybe three practices before the big tournament. Like they only gave us a few oh. practices before the tournament and they put us in doubles. So, which is arguably, I guess, easier than singles. I mean, long story short, the tournament was just like a barrage of like match after match after match. And I want to remind you, I had maybe played three games or three, three practices worth of tennis to my life to that point. And I, again, was so bad and we lost every single game. And then I'll never forget vividly. It was like, it was kind of one of those tournaments where it's like, you know, the two losers play, the two losers play, the losers play, the losers. So, like, sure. over the course of the day, arguably, you will eventually get matched up with people that were probably more at your level, whether you're sure. very good or trying. And the very last match we had was against two gals in jeans. And I was like, these gals <laughs> are in jeans. We've got a chance. They may not be, you know... They may not be better yeah. than us because they're in jeans. We're at least in shorts. Like, we're at least dressed for the occasion. They beat us. They beat us. The gals in jeans, even they beat us. So let this be a, a lesson that it doesn't matter whether or not you can extend your legs fully. <laughs> if the other team is bad, you can still win. <laughs> I like that jeans were the choice. I like that a lot. Yeah. Like, are we talking like... A baggy 90s jean or just like? It was, I mean, yeah, it was not, they weren't super baggy, but it was, it was like a, this would have been like maybe 98, 99, somewhere between 98 and 2000. And it was like a boot cut jean, basically. But like before I... stretch was really coming into jeans. So like playing in jeans now, if you're in a spandexy, stretchy jean, that, that sure. wouldn't be that hard. But at the time, this was before they were putting anything stretchy in jeans. So when you see two gals walking onto the court in <laughs> jeans, you're like, we've got a chance. We've got a chance. But we didn't. We were that bad. Oh, and they were that boy. good, I guess. Yeah. I mean, they were also pretty, pretty, uh, They we were evenly matched, but they were better, is the point. Wow. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, you commented about they could have been good, but I was going to go... Well, they were also the last match of the day, so. Yep. But I guess they were good enough. Yeah. Exactly. Jeans 
Wearing jeans in a sport is like the universal sign of I could not care any less about this. Yep. <laughs> yep. This it was the equivalent of my parents are forcing me to do a sport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't think I ever wore jeans. Uh, jeans were a questionable choice. I love it a lot and I can't wait for the movie that we somehow write about something not tennis related but there's a match where someone shows up in jeans because they didn't bring their regular uniform. Yeah. But it has to also because... take place in the 90s before stretch was put into jeans. That's that's a key <laughs> so, part to this. So, so people realize they they weren't pajama jeans. They were like legit nothing but denim. Well, which brings me to one Those things don't breathe. <laughs> one more thing about jeans very quickly. I, when I um, now I'm also just listing my resume in this episode. Get used to it. Anyway, <laughs> when I was in when I was in a film called The Disaster Artist, uh, which was about the room, which was that movie about the yeah. room, um, I was playing uh, the flower shop owner, and part of that movie was they were recreating. I was in a scene that was a recreation of the real movie The Room, so they were being very very uh, elaborately careful about trying to make it as close as possible to the point to the point that they pulled vintage jeans from when the movie would have been made now I can't remember what year the room was made whatever it was I think it was like early 90s so they were they pulled jeans from the 90s men's jeans specifically also and so they had like eight different pairs in eight different sizes for me to try on and here's a fun fact for people who don't know if you have a small part on a TV show or in a movie, you'll sometimes just do your fitting for your costume when you when you show up that day. Often, if it's a bigger part, you go in prior and do a fitting. But if you're a small sure. enough part, they do it the, the morning of, which can be exceptionally stressful because you gotta hope they have something that works. And I, I'm gonna tell you this, is that they were trying on pair of jean after pair of jean on me. But again, these were 90s, real vintage 90s jeans, and none of them, I couldn't get any of them to do up. And the joke was is that they kept handing me sizes that were getting, quote, bigger and bigger. But I was up to a men's 46, and they still wouldn't get, and I I turned to them at one point, and I went, ladies, I'm not a men's 46, (laughs) okay? (laughs) I said, do you have any other jeans? Could we even get a 90s ladies jean for me to try? Please. Sure. I beg you. They're also trusting that these 1992 jeans had been labeled correctly. You know what I mean? Like, there's no tags in these jeans. Yeah. Long story short, they had to dig, dig deep, and they did end up finding me some jeans that fit from the 90s. Uh, but it was just such hell. It's such hell when you're trying yeah. on thing after thing after thing, and none of them fit. And they're like, well, it's a 46. And I'm like, but I, you it, you can say it's a 52. You could also say it's a 12. It, it doesn't change the fact that they don't fit. Like... It can be any number you want to say. They're not doing up. Sure. You're, and scientifically speaking, because I'm not 46 inches around, no. these are not 46 inches. But anyway, uh, hell on earth, uh, that moment of my life. Um, but yeah, they were. what I loved was they were that concerned that the jeans I wore had to be from the 90s. They had to be accurate. And yet the character I was playing had a short haircut in the movie and they did not put me in a wig. They put my hair in a bun. So I don't know. I don't know what the... <laughs> What the, where the rules started and ended on that picture, I don't know. But there you go. The, the line was hazy at best. Yeah, as hazy as James Franco's morals. <laughs> <laughs> we could say that freely, yeah. can't we? 
Yeah, I mean, I feel like if Seth Rogen's let him go, we can have at it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> I'm at that point in the night, and we haven't even gotten into the case yet. This bodes yep. well. Uh, what you drinking over there? Uh, you know, I had some leftover from the last time, so I'm doing a rainbow twist. Well, buckle in, because we have a visitor to the podcast okay. tonight. It's someone we haven't seen in quite some time. Ladies and gentlemen, Kimmy C. Kimmy C. Kim Crawford is in the house. Oh, what a delight. What a delight. It's good to see, it's good to see him again. Isn't it? Now that we know that it's male. A male Kim. That's right. The Kim Crawford yeah. Sauvignon Blanc. I don't get paid. We don't get a penny, but it's a delicious item. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> oh, well, listen, let's get into it. So exciting about, uh, so excited about today's episode. Of course, we are going to be talking about Ryan Singleton. Now, this, of course, was the July patrons poll pick winner. Uh, for those of you who are like, what are those words you just said? Uh, we are on something called Patreon which you can visit at patreon.com slash truecrimeandcocktails. It is a bonus episode uh, wonderland over there. Uh, we offer bonus episodes, live Q&As every month, and there is a patrons poll once a month where uh, anyone who is a patron gets to vote on an upcoming episode of the show. This was one of our winners. Uh, so check it out if you'd like a little bit more of the nonsense that we like to put out in the world. Um, it's a whole lot of fun. We enjoy it. We have a good time over there. So, Ryan Singleton. Now, I don't know a lot about this case, so I'm going to tell all of you right now uh, a little backstory, and then we're going to dig in. Ryan Singleton was an aspiring model and actor whose car broke down during a weekend trip to California. Ryan contacted a friend to come pick him up, but when the friend arrived, Ryan had disappeared. Less than three months later, Ryan's body was found two miles from the place where he was last seen, and all of his organs were missing. So what happened to Ryan Singleton? Was he attacked by natural desert predators? Or were the predators possibly the people who claimed to be the last to see Ryan before he disappeared? And why are those people refusing to publicly disclose their names? Oh my. my. Okay, well. Lay it on me, because there is clearly a story to be told here. Uh, yeah, there's a lot that we're going to go on a lot of journeys today. Not, not one multiple journeys. We're all over the place. I love it. Is, uh, is where we're going. Uh, we're going to start with Ryan Terrell Singleton was born January 22nd, 1989, weighing 10 pounds, seven ounces. Ryan's mother, Iris, said that Ryan, quote, defied all methods of birth control I used to get here. (laughs) She was determined that this meant that Ryan had a special purpose in life. He was described as loving, sweet, respectable, intelligent, fun, and peaceful. It was said he enjoyed traveling, writing, and was a unique person that was full of life. Iris said, quote, he was an all-around good guy. I know parents like to brag about their children, but Ryan really was that way. Ryan was an honor student in high school and went on to attend college. In June 2010, at the age of 21, Ryan left his home in Georgia to pursue his dreams of becoming a model. Ryan arrived in New York, where he found some success, including getting onto the runway during Fashion Week. Hmm. 
Ryan's mother Iris found out about after seeing photos of Ryan on Facebook in gold shorts on runway. Ryan soon set his sights on Hollywood with the dreams of being an actor and getting into film production. And since some of the friends that Ryan met in New York wanted to start a film production company, a few of them decided to pack their lives into a U-Haul and head to Los Angeles. With the dream of becoming the Black Entourage, they documented their cross-country journey in what they believed to be their own reality show called Are We Famous Yet? Ryan introduced himself on camera as Ryan S., a.k.a. Shotzi the Model. Each friend had their own title. Uh, there was LaShawn Tucker, who was the artist. Jared Davis was the prick, which I find very funny. Uh, Antonio uh, Faison was the father, and Tavon Evans was the all-star. Can I just say really quick, I would watch the shit yeah. out of Black Entourage, and I would also watch the shit out of whatever reality show they were pitching was. <laughs> this sounds great. Yeah, there's, I mean, get on Black Entourage. Get on that. Uh, yeah. You know? Yeah, like, that's a that's a million dollar idea. Honestly, yeah. like, they, they sh I hope they pitch that, because... That's a show that you could get made. Come on, guys. They've been through a trauma. They're not thinking about their jobs anymore, Lauren. They've lost a loved one. <laughs> oh, well, wait for it. Oh, no. Um, in one clip, uh, Ryan says, quote, I come from Georgia and now I'm here living my dreams. I don't want to look like I did nothing with my life. Shit, my dreams are my dreams and my legacy will be what I make it. He also said, quote, in order to become a legend, I know one has to earn it, and I don't mind working hard to achieve that status. After Ryan's death, three of his friends have turned their footage into a true crime docuseries under the title Dying to be Famous, which I have desperately tried to find, but could not find it anywhere. Um, which brings me to a convention side note. Hello. The friends took their new documentary to CrimeCon in Indianapolis in June 2017. And to CrimeCon, all I can say is contact at truecrimeandcocktails.com. <laughs> please, please, so, CrimeCon, <laughs> tell us more. It's, we've been talking about it now. It has to be, it just has to keep being a thing. Yep. Uh, now, unfortunately, with this particular case, finding certain information, specifically exact dates, was rather difficult. There are a lot of articles out there about Ryan Singleton, but honestly, most of them are all kind of the same pieces of information. So the best I can do is say after a couple of years in California, Ryan decided to pack his stuff and head back to New York. In late 2012, I've seen fall, I've seen December sometime late 2012. So not much is known of his time in the Big Apple, uh, but we do know that he got more work as a model. Ryan walked the runway show um, that was featuring work by fashion designer and celebrity stylist Kite Brewster. This show was held in September of 2010, 2012, sorry, and said to be, uh, said to debut Kite's spring 2013 collection. It was held at the Johnson room, Johnston Room in the Nomad Hotel. Which brings me to a Kite Brewster side note. Hello. 
For those who may never have heard the name prior to this, because no offense, Kite, but I had not. <laughs> not that I have a finger on the pulse of fashion, mind you. Uh, Kite Brewster spent 14 years in Europe as a fashion editor and stylist. He started in Paris at the age of 19, and after seven years, moved to London, where he started to style for artists such as Bewitched, whose 1998 video for C'est La Vie uh, features the girls in dark jeans and matching uh, dark jean jackets. That video is said to have been credited with bringing denim back into the mainstream, hmm. which I didn't know it ever left the mainstream, so again... Not a finger on the pulse. Uh, Kite worked with Elle and Scene magazines while in the UK and soon made a name for himself as a major player in the London fashion scene. This led to a move to the US where he styled over 15 covers for Flaunt magazine with stars such as Kate Blanchett, Drew Barrymore, Selma Hayek, Winona Ryder, and Adrian Brody, which just sounds like one of Blanche's lists to me more than <laughs> anything else. Totally. Yeah. Uh, he spent three years as Heidi Klum's personal stylist and has had other personal clients such as Halle Berry, Julianne Moore, Iman, Diane Lane, Usher, and Eva Mendez. Huh. British Vogue once said, quote, Kite Brewster is to the best dressed list what Henry Ford was to the automobile. Wow. Okay. Uh, I couldn't find any definitive answer, but it is my understanding that Kite and Ryan met during the production of a movie called Black November. According to Ryan's friends, they claim that Kite used Black November to manipulate Ryan into leaving his friends, and that's when he moved back to New York. Uh, and surprising everyone, including Ryan's own mother, Ryan and Kite got married in a small private ceremony on December 23rd, 2012. Wedding guest side note, while there were not a lot of guests, one guest worth noting was Kite's BFF, Cynthia Bailey, who some may know from The Real Housewives of Atlanta. Cynthia has been a real housewife since 2010. Kite even dressed Cynthia for her own wedding. Cynthia posted about her friend's wedding on Instagram on December 24th, 2012, sharing a few photos from her, quote, BFF's wedding, New York, 2012. Although I noticed that Kite and Cynthia no longer follow each other on social media. Interesting. So maybe something's happened there. I don't know. Um, what I do know is this full brag side note. Ooh. Cynthia, I just said Cynthia posted about the wedding December 24th, but I feel the need to clarify because I'm a maniac um, that the wedding took place December 23rd. I just don't want people to think my date was inaccurate, but I found their marriage license, number 32379, uh, to be exact, and it showed the wedding took place December 23rd. There wasn't a lot of info that I could find on this case, so just give me this tiny win. Kudos. Thank you. Uh, Ryan's mother said, quote, I find out on social media Ryan had gotten married to a man twice his age. I don't even know who this is. I don't even have a clue as to what's going on. It was a total shock. And of course, it was a bit of a shock to Iris. Not only uh, is that how she learned that her son was married, but it's also how she learned that her son was gay. Oh. And as much as I would love to say exactly what the age difference was, 
Kite's age and birth date have not been made public, which I find interesting. But as of November 2020, it is said that he was in his 50s. It doesn't help us narrow it down too much, but Kite was probably somewhere in his 40s when he married, married Ryan, who was 23 at the time. Right. And hey, no judgment on ages. If they were happy, good for them. Unfortunately, from the sounds of it, I don't think they were. Mm. The pair were allegedly evicted from their apartment in February 2013. Iris claims Ryan once called her in the middle of the night to say, quote, I just threw an $8,000 bag out the window and I don't give a fuck. I can't take this any longer. He's controlling me and we're living in an apartment with no food, lights, and I'm showering at the YMCA. I can't believe I let it him trick me into giving up everything oh iris also claims that anytime she was on the phone with ryan he would hang up immediately whenever kite entered the room ryan allegedly left to live with relatives in the new york area who said that ryan arrived looking as though he had lost weight and was dirty and exhausted but soon after ryan returned to living with his husband four months after the wedding kite and ryan allegedly visited georgia for easter when they got Ryan a Georgia ID, I don't know why it was chosen at that moment to do so, but shortly after Iris dropped them off at the airport after their visit, Ryan called her and asked to be picked up. Iris said, quote, he didn't tell me anything about his marriage. He just didn't want to go back to New York. So he didn't go and stayed here and he got a job. As an avid swimmer, Ryan worked as a certified lifeguard at the YMCA in Atlanta. Iris alleges that at this point, Ryan had very little, if any, interactions with other people and that some of his friends had only seen him two or three times in the last year of his life. Months after he moved back, Ryan ominously said to his mother, quote, something bad is going to happen to me, isn't it? And when Iris pressed him further about it, um, Iris claims that Ryan said, quote, I've done a lot of things to hurt a lot of people. Iris never learned what Ryan was referring to, but speculated that it could have been because of leaving the production team or something to do with his failed marriage or the fact that he barely communicated with his mother after he had left home. Two days after this odd conversation, Ryan decided to take a weekend trip to Los Angeles. On July 4th, 2013, Ryan and his mother celebrated the holiday with relatives and friends at a cookout. After returning home afterwards, Ryan mentioned he would be taking this trip to California. Ryan was originally meant to fly out on July 5th, but due to a downpour of rain, his trip got postponed until the next day. So on July 6th, Iris drove Ryan to the train station so he could travel to the airport. Ryan later called Iris to say he had arrived and that he planned to return home on July 9th. I read that Ryan may have also visited New Mexico and Arizona on this trip, but I could not confirm that. On July 9th, around 9.30, Ryan called his mother to say he was coming home, but he needed her to send him $100 via Western Union to Vegas. Around 10 a.m. that same day, Iris said that Kite called her and asked, Is Ryan with you? Stunned by the question, Kite then asked again, quote, Mom, is Ryan physically there with you? I heard people laughing in the background when I spoke to Ryan a minute ago. Iris said, no, Ryan is in California. And Kite said, quote, oh no, mom, he could be in danger out there. Ryan's body was later found in the Mojave Desert 
on September 21st. And while researching the Mojave Desert, because you know I try to be very thorough, of course, I came across two cases that I wanted to mention. Not because they're connected to this case specifically uh, in any way aside from the location, but because one is fairly well known and there's not a lot of information about it and I don't think I'll ever get another chance to talk about it. And then the other case is a cold case that I am just fascinated by. So buckle up, dear listeners, for an off-the-rails-down-the-rabbit-hole tangent. The idea that I don't have a little sound, like I can't just click a button and it's lightning or thunder, not lightning, Christy, you see lightning. Yeah, well, we're gonna, we gotta, we gotta get on it. You know. Uh, so the Mojave Desert is located mostly in southeastern California, but it extends into southwestern Nevada as well as Arizona and Utah. Fun fact, I don't know how fun it is, uh, the Mojave is the smallest and driest desert of the four American deserts, which was the moment in my research that I learned that America has four deserts. Uh, the largest is the Great Basin Desert, which is mostly Nevada, but also goes into Utah, California, and Idaho. So the Mojave Desert uh, is not only remote and vast, it's intensely hot and has very few park rangers who monitor it, so it turns out that a lot of terrifying stuff happens there. Such as the case of the McStay family, a family of four who disappeared from their home in Fallbrook, California in early February 2010. 40-year-old Joseph and his 43-year-old wife Summer owned and operated a company called Earth Inspired that built decorative fountains. Summer was also a licensed real estate agent. The couple had two children, four-year-old Gianni and three-year-old Joseph Jr. On February 4th, 2010, at 7.47 p.m., a neighbor's surveillance camera captured the bottom 18 inches of a vehicle, which was thought at the time to be the McStay family's 1996 Isuzu Trooper. At 8.28 p.m., a call was placed by Joseph's cell phone to his business associate, Charles Chase Merritt, which went to voicemail. The cell phone pinged a tower in Fallbrook. Merritt later told police he ignored it because he was watching a movie. As the days go by, relatives of the McStays try to contact the family, but they're unsuccessful. On February 13th, Joseph's brother Michael traveled to the McStays' house. When he noticed an open window at the back, he climbed inside. The family was not home, but their two dogs were in the backyard. On February 15th, Michael phoned the sheriff's department and reported his brother and their, his family missing. Officers arrived at the home February 19th and found no evidence of a struggle or foul, foul play, although there were indications of a hasty departure. Such as there was a carton of eggs left on the counter, there were two small bowls of popcorn sitting on the couch, things like that. So police found no sign of the family. However, when they looked into their computer search histories, they found things like Spanish language lessons and what documents do children need traveling to Mexico. Oh. So pe people started to speculate the family had left voluntarily. Unconfirmed sightings of the family were even reported in Mexico and the McStay's vehicle was found in a parking lot near the Mexican border. However... It was pointed out that the McStays had left more than $100,000 in their bank accounts and that no withdrawals had been made 
prior to this supposed trip, and the accounts had not been touched since their disappearance. Then more than three years later, on November 11, 2013, a motorcyclist came across a skull and two shallow graves in the Mojave Desert. The graves contained four sets of human remains as well as a three-pound sledgehammer. The victims were identified as the McStay family, and the coroner ruled their deaths to be homicides and that the cause of death was blunt force trauma. So police have the bodies, and just as they start to investigate, Merritt decides in January 2014, maybe he should write a book about the family. Merritt claimed that Summer had anger issues and implied that she was responsible for a mystery illness that Joseph had been battling. But it turns out that Merritt is just a piece of shit because on November 5th, 2014, Merritt was arrested in connection with the deaths of the McStay family after his DNA was found in the McStay's vehicle. It turns out Merritt had a bit of a gambling problem and after killing the McStay's, he wrote himself checks totaling more than $21,000 from Joseph's business account just days after the family disappeared. Merritt then took the money and went on a gambling spree where he proceeded to lose it all. Merritt is really dragging the case out, uh, which feels exactly like what that asshat was doing in the Widower episode, because this guy went through five attorneys in just 15 months. Ugh. And then even tried to represent himself. Oh, boy. The trial finally began in January 2019, and six months later, Merritt was found guilty of murdering the McStays and was sentenced to death in January 2020. And another case that I mentioned, uh, which was a cold case that I am fascinated by, it happened in November 1980, when the bodies of a man and woman were found in the Mojave Desert. Neither victim had any clothing or any identifying information, so the remains were labeled John Doe 29 and Jane Doe 10. It is believed that both victims were around the age of 20 and that they'd been in the desert graves for approximately six to eight months before being found. An autopsy found they both died from a combination of gunshot wounds and blunt force trauma. Jump to 2018, when, after deciding to adopt a child, a woman in Virginia, who was adopted as a child herself, decided she wanted to find her own biological parents. So she hired a private investigator who submitted the woman's DNA to a global DNA database, and a parent-child match was found between the Virginia woman and the Jane Doe. On April 23rd, 2021... To date, yes. the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department announced the remains had finally been identified. Thanks to this woman's DNA and stories she had heard about her mother, investigators were able to get DNA from John Doe's family, and the couple was determined to be 20-year-old Pamela Duffy and 19-year-old William Lane. And not only had the remains been identified four decades later, but the DNA also led investigators to find a suspect who, shockingly, was already in prison for the murder of his own niece and brother. Whoa. This asshat was sentenced to death in 1982, but the sentence was commuted after an IQ test found him to be borderline mentally challenged. 
he is currently serving three life sentences. And I know that I said I was only going to mention two cases, but I actually found a third one uh, that took place in Baker, which is a city we will, or town rather, that we will get into. Um, and it's wild. And so just buckle up. So 25-year-old Betty Walraven uh, was reported missing from Santa Ana in May 1946. In 1971, a hiker came across some human remains believed to be an adult female. Then in 1975, a man named Terry Mabry, who was serving time for the murder of a policeman during a botched robbery, confessed that a female companion had shot Betty and that Terry helped dispose of this woman's body. DNA samples were taken, and in 2011, the remains were finally identified as Betty Walraven after 65 years. Wow. I find that insane, but also really cool. Yes! Um, but the tea about what happened to Betty, it turns out that Betty's husband was serving overseas and she started an affair with Terry Mabry. Terry then decided to start another romantic relationship with a woman named Jean Kitty Hodges. Well, according to Terry, one night in May 1946, Kitty came into his home and found Terry in bed with Betty. Terry said he woke up to the sound of a gunshot and found Kitty beside the bed holding a gun. Terry admitted he didn't call the police, but rather burned the bloody sheets in his backyard incinerator, wrapped Betty's body in a blanket, and drove the body a few miles east of Baker, where Kitty and Terry buried the body in the desert. Kitty even took the diamond ring off Betty's finger before she was buried. Whoa! And since they had a ring, it only made sense that Kitty and Terry would get married three weeks later. Stop. At the time, Kitty had two children, which is the only reason I'm assuming he chose to help her. Uh, the couple remained married for 20 years, although Terry spent most of his years uh, in and out of prison. But with Terry's confession, police were able to DNA test for uh, Betty's great-nephew and officially identify her remains. Kitty never officially confessed. However, one of her daughters said that she remembers her mother drunkenly rambling about a body in a desert. Near the end of her life, Kitty was living alone with 87 cats. Oh, Kitty. <laughs> she lived up to her name. <laughs> she really did. Uh, the case is now the oldest solved cold case investigation in Santa Ana's history. In 2011, a San Bernardino County deputy coroner was asked about the remains being identified after more than 60 years. And his response is so chilling. He said, quote, we are constantly finding bodies in the desert. Oh, and I'm just unsettled by that. But it segues beautifully back into our story. Look at you. So... We're going to look further into Ryan Singleton's last days in California. Unfortunately, details are a little murky, and since we don't have Ryan's word for it, we have to piece this all together from eyewitness accounts. So on July 6th, Ryan arrives in Los Angeles. He rents a car from Avis and drove from Los Angeles to Las Vegas. On July 9th at 
Ryan calls his mother to ask her to transfer some money. Then, according to Kite, Ryan then called his husband briefly. Then, while driving back from Vegas on July 9th, the rental car broke down in Death Valley. Ryan got out of the car and started walking down the highway, where he was spotted walking along Interstate 15 around 2 p.m. by two California Highway Patrolmen, who drive Ryan around looking for his car, but when they don't find it, the deputies drive Ryan to an Arco gas station in Baker, California. In 2013, Baker had a population of 837, but as of 2021, that number is now closer to about 541. It's approximately 177 miles, or 285 kilometers, east of Los Angeles and is a popular pit stop for travelers heading to or from Las Vegas, as it's only 94 miles or 150 kilometers away. Baker is known as the Gateway to Death Valley, as it's situated at the northeastern part of the Mojave Desert and is just south of the area known as Death Valley. Temperatures in July in the area average around 108 degrees Fahrenheit, 42 degrees Celsius. Uh, the area is hot, like so hot it's considered to be inhospitable and desolate with no natural cover, just low growth scrub. But what they do have brings us to a landmark side note. Baker is home to the world's tallest thermometer. Hello. It was built in 1991 by the Young Electric Sign Company for Willis Heron, a businessman in Baker who spent $750,000, which is almost $1.5 million in 2021, uh, to have this landmark built next to his Bun Boy restaurant. Bun Boy is maybe my favorite name for anything. Uh, massive winds soon snapped the thermometer in half, <laughs> so it needed to be rebuilt. Two years later, severe wind gusts made some of the more than 5,000 light bulbs pop out, so concrete had to be poured to reinforce the landmark. The sign weighs about 77,000 pounds, and it stands 134 feet tall. The very specific height was chosen in honor of the hottest temperature ever recorded in the area, which was 134 degrees Fahrenheit, or 57 degrees Celsius which was recorded on July 10th, 1913. The man who had it made was so proud of it that when he died in 2007, a picture of the thermometer was added to his tombstone. Oh my God. And at the rate I'm going, I guess mine will just have a picture of Rue McClanahan or maybe the poster from Speed. <laughs> <laughs> and now that's a dream I have, so. Yep. You know. Uh, did she have anything to do with the movie? No. no. That's very, very funny to me. Uh, so the thing to keep in mind from my side note is the area is hot as hell, especially in the summer months. According to the deputies, Ryan made a purchase at the gas station where they dropped him off and then walked out of the store. Allegedly, there is surveillance camera footage of Ryan buying something at the store and walking out around 2.20 p.m. Apparently, the car was found the next day, on July 10th, about 3 miles, or 4.8 kilometers northwest, of the 
Halloran Springs exit, which is a few miles east of where Ryan and the deputies had originally searched. Uncertain side note. I had read that when the rental car was found, it had been wiped clean of prints and that Ryan's phone and backpack were inside the car. I have not seen anything that verifies that. Although it has been claimed that Ryan was found with his wallet and a different cell phone. But again, I can't verify that there were multiple cell phones. But that's the word on the street, if I may. Thank you. So the patrolman dropped Ryan off at the Arco State gas station convenience store. Uh, and since Ryan didn't seem intoxicated or impaired in any way, they left. Ryan then called a friend from the gas station asking for a ride. The friend says that they drove three hours to pick him up, so I assume the friend was driving from L.A., which is just over three hours from Baker. The friend arrives and Ryan is nowhere to be found. The friend looks around for him, but after no sign of Ryan, the friend drives home, then goes to the police station the next day and fills out a missing persons report. The report claims that Ryan arrived in Los Angeles on July 6th, where he stayed with a friend. July 7th, he left for Las Vegas. On July 8th, Ryan allegedly called to say he was on his way back to L.A., and around 10 p.m., he called the same friend again uh, to say he would be pulling over to sleep for a while. On July 9th, Ryan called to say he was running low on fuel and money, and the friend deposited $60 into Ryan's bank account. Ryan then called the friend at 3 p.m. on July 9th to say he was in Baker and asked the friend to come pick him up. The friend arrived in Baker and after being unable to find Ryan, returned to L.A. In all accounts that I have read, this friend is never mentioned by name, but I've been led to believe the friend uh, could possibly have been the person called LaShawn Tucker, who was the artist in Are We Famous Yet? Oh, on the tw on the Twitter page for Dying to be Famous, there is a video that plays a clip from a phone call with LaShawn's mother. She claims LaShawn told her Ryan had called LaShawn and told him he was getting a motel room for the night. We, of course, don't know if that's true, but one thing I question is this friend claims that Ryan left Vegas on July 8th, but Iris claims Ryan called her from Vegas on the morning of July 9th. I don't know if phone records confirmed where the call was coming from or not, but it just seems super suspicious to me. Um, also on their Twitter, which is a small side note I found, which I didn't call it a side note, so I don't know why I've said that. Um, this group with the documentary also posted what is believed to be a text message that Iris sent to Kite saying, quote, Ryan told me he was never going back to you, that you controlled him, and he left me a text saying the marriage between you two was something he, didn't, he did to try and get ahead because you introduced him to a few celebrities. I'm concerned about the authenticity of this message, though, because at one point she used the term, bruh. And, uh, I've never heard anyone over the age of 30 use it in earnest. Yeah. Um, so... There is nothing to prove that this message was from her, but I find it interesting either way, especially since it was posted by the group doing the documentary who had been filming with Ryan prior to his death. Uh, so July 11th, the case was assigned to a detective in Barstow 
who spoke with Iris to say that Ryan was allegedly receiving money from multiple people. Mm. From what I've read, not only did Ryan contact his mother and his estranged husband, but also numerous friends who were unable to send any money. But after that, there was no word from or sight of Ryan. However, internet sleuths thought they had found something in a sighting side note. Hello. Photos were posted online in July 2013, and people started to claim the photo showed Ryan Singleton at a, quote, satanic spirit cooking hunt party. In reality, the photos were from the 20th annual Watermill Center Summer Benefit, which took place July 27th, 2013. The benefit, which raises money for artist residency programs, featured installations and performances created by participants from over 25 countries. The photos in question showed Lady Gaga viewing an installation that featured a male model wearing nothing but body paint. And when I say nothing, I mean nothing. I'm sure you Uh, got in there and you made sure, though, just to verify it. Oh, it, you didn't even have to look close. Got it. Um, I, I, I did not think this case was going to lead to a dick pic. Um, but that's the fun part about our show because you just never know what you're going to get. But I'll tell you this. Um, it was a darker skin male and the paint was like a white. So it just highlighted everything. And I was like, but that's not, oh boy. Yep. And then I suddenly was like a nun where I'm looking everywhere and I'm embarrassed. Um, the model in question uh, turned out to be Philip J. Lewis and not Ryan Singleton. Mm. So I like that it went from, oh, well, this is clearly a satanic ritual thing. And it's like, no, because I don't I don't believe if there was a satanic ritual happening, Lady Gaga would just be standing there at the side you know like the photo is her just standing there it's very well there is there is this kind of i don't know i don't know how to word this i don't know whether i should call it conspiracy theory or what the appropriate term would be but i've heard of this before that there are there is this group of celebrities that take part in these and and i think it's this i think it's the same thing um and it's kind of like they make like an effigy of a person, like they make a cake in the shape of a person, but they use like human blood and stuff. And then it's. Oh, God. Yeah. I don't believe it's true. So to your point, I don't think that that's what was up. But that is um, there's been lots on the books about that from what I've been told. Uh, uh, everything's weird. Um, <laughs> But listen, I already have theories rolling around in my noodle, and I haven't even gotten the whole case yet. Let's take a quick break, get another drink, hit the can, and we're going to be right back talking more about Ryan Singleton on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails, Famous Fatalities Edition. CheapCaribbean.com has been around for over 20 years and is in the business of providing the best all-inclusive beach vacations you can find. All-inclusive beach vacations mean you get to eat all the food, drink all the alcohol and non-alcoholic beverages you want, and there's also fun beach and night activities. Everything is included when you book at CheapCaribbean.com. Now, Cheap Caribbean has no change fees, and when you book at a Cheap Caribbean resort and add trip protection, you can book with confidence. 
Less money, less worry, more beach. Also, be sure to check out either a Dreams or Secrets Resort when you book with Cheap Caribbean. Right now, you can take $100 off your next beach vacay when you visit CheapCaribbean.com slash true-crime-cocktails. We'll see you on the beach. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails Famous Fatalities Edition. We are, of course, discussing the case of Ryan Singleton. Uh, we left off with a bizarre Hollywood party. Um, <laughs> what, what do you got for me now? He's been missing at this point. They think there's been some sightings. They haven't actually seen him. What's next? Well, Ryan was not seen or heard from for 74 days Oof. until his body was found in the desert. He was 24 years old. Mm. On September 21st, 2013, around 7.45 p.m., two men hiking discovered Ryan's remains about 200 yards off of Silver Lane, which is only 1.4 miles or 2.2 kilometers from the Arco station where he was last seen. And this leads me to something I haven't said in a while. A map. Holy shitter. And by map... I mean three. Hello. (laughs) I just, for anyone who wants a visual who's seeing this, uh, I'm going to do my best. So, uh, map one shows his full trip from Vegas down to Los Angeles, um, which is like a 269-mile, 433-kilometer trip. Yes. um, Which is roughly like, Four hours, 43 minutes, yep. according to Google. Uh, the distance from Vegas to Baker, which is where he ended up, uh, is 93.5 miles or 150 kilometers. So, when we look a little closer, uh, from what I've read, the rental car was found three miles west of the Halloran Springs exit. So, we have Vegas on the map. We have that, or Vegas was way up here. We've got the exit. Uh, at the top of my map, and Baker down at the bottom. Um, It's roughly 13.6 miles or 22 kilometers from the exit to Baker. The car was found about three miles away. And this map, of course, also shows where he was dropped off and where the body was found. But if you want me to zoom in, I will. (laughs) So we've got a map of Baker. Um... The body was found off of Silver Lane, which is 1.4 miles or 2.2 kilometers from the Arco station, where he was allegedly last seen. And seeing the map, I just kind of can't help but wonder, like, he's last seen down here. The body was found, like, if he had directly just walked straight up and followed the road, he could have ended up there. I don't know if he walked there and ended up there himself. Or if somebody put him there. The point is... Now we kind of have a mental idea, a mental picture, as it were. Yes. I will, of course, p- post pictures uh, on Instagram, uh, Twitter, and Facebook at True Crime and Cocktails. I guess technically Twitter is at Not Detectives. So, you know. Uh, so I saw somewhere that authorities claimed to have searched within a five-mile radius of where Ryan was last seen. So if that's true, they would have found the body. But that's also assuming that the body was there the whole time. Maybe it was moved there after the police searched. 
but maybe the search wasn't as intensive as they claimed. I don't know, but we'll get on into that more uh, with theories. So these hikers, who it turns out were a local resident and his cousin, come across the remains, call 911, and the San Bernardino County Fire Department arrive and confirm that they are in fact human remains. The body was clothed in black athletic shorts, faded black top, black high top Chuck Taylor All-Stars, black socks, and an orange rubber bracelet labeled Tri-Camp 2013 uh, on the right wrist. No clothing was found on the upper torso. After the remains were found, Barstow police passed the case over to the San Bernardino Sheriff's Department. The body was identified by post-mortem fingerprints as Ryan Terrell Singleton. The autopsy was conducted September 25th by pathologist Stephen Trenkel. The body was badly decomposed, although still mostly intact, but with his eyes and organs missing. Several ribs appeared to have been removed by animal activity. At the time of the examination, the body weighed only 50 pounds, as it was nearly completely skeletonized. Wow. Decomposition is accelerated by heat, so it's no surprise the body was in such poor condition due to the unbearably hot conditions that the body was found in, to the point where some of the skin was described as mummified. Wow. Again, out there, it gets over 100 degrees, so being out, but assuming that he was out in that for several months, I'm not surprised by that. Um... The face appeared to be markedly dehydrated, and the only trauma that the coroner noted was a possible fracture on the right side of the skull. However, it is believed the fracture could have occurred post-mortem, as there was no evidence of decompositional material found within the temporal bone fracture line. Not to mention the fracture begins or ends at one of the saw cuts that was made by the pathologist, So it felt very like, whoops, I think we did that, but I can't guarantee. Right. There were no internal organs in the chest, abdomen, or pelvis, and it was believed that this was all due to animal activity. The toxicology that was run said that there was a slight chance that there might be amphetamines present, but due to the harsh environmental conditions, the little tissue that could be tested uh, could have been compromised, and the only organ left was the brain, which was described as, quote, a four centimeter layer of decomposed brain layered on the right side of the skull. Whoa. So they could not get very much out of it. So the test was not exactly very conclusive. Uh, but once one thing I'm going to say about the autopsy report, uh, Stephen Trenkel, Stephen, may I call you Steve? Stephen two issues just minor ones on the first page of your report Stephen, uh you list the decedent's name middle name as gerald uh whereas it's terrell or terrell um you claim the body was found september 22nd whereas later in the report you list it was september 21st again minor typos we all make mistakes but dear god man it's an official report May I just make one more plea to the youth of America? (laughs) If you have the stomach to become a medical examiner, I implore you, this country needs you, okay? 
Yeah. This is, of course, a callback to what episode was it? They all blur. I want to say Alonzo Brooks. I believe it was. And there was some real medical examiner uh, (laughs) hootenannying going on. And so I beg you, young people, if you think, if you're listening to the show, you're a fan of true crime. Maybe you think you have the stomach for it. It's a very specific job. Look into it. We need you. We need you. Okay? If this... Please. If this somehow turns to, like, a whole new generation getting into STEM, I... It's all I want. And I think I can say right now, if you are a young person and you end up going down that road, don't let this be the reason that you do it. But if you do... We'll come to your graduation. <laughs> we'll come. Oh, boy. To you being... Yeah. I mean, again, this would be like a decade from now, I'm sure. It's a lot of schooling. But the point is, I'll make good on it. I'll show. I'll bring... Will. I'll bring goddamn egg salad sandwiches cut into triangles. They'll be delicious. Okay? I'll come. Please. I hope they're not graduating somewhere hot. Yeah, I'm going to need a very, very powerful cooler bag. It's going to be 10 years from now. Who knows what the advances in coolers are going to be by then? What I like is you said cooler bag, but in my head, it was us two chuckleheads at the back row with a wheeled cooler sitting there having our snacks and waiting for that single name to be called for us to like full hootenanny oh yeah right? i've cracked a cutwater marg i'm looped okay <laughs> you've smuggled in palm bays from canada and literally yeah. it's gonna be like marjorie <laughs> <laughs> you're two drunk ants in the back that's my girl <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna have those helmets that have the beer cans and the tubes yes uh we're gonna yes. have we're gonna have shirts with her name on them or his or their name on them, but you know what I'm saying. Yes. I'm just saying. Of course. For the love of all that's holy, consider being a medical exam. Please. I can't wait for the true crime and cocktails tour yep. of us going to all these graduations. Yep. I hope for I hope for it. I hope that it's so I many can't wait. that it puts it puts us in the poorhouse. That's what I hope. <laughs> because at least then d- deaths are gonna be getting the autopsies they're due yeah i just love your faith in the people and what i wouldn't give for this to be uh what makes a young person go stem you say yeah (laughs) yeah we're talking stem we're talking stem we're we're specifically talking (laughs) autopsies (laughs) again it's not an easy job we know that no we get that yeah. Think about it. Just think about it. Uh, oh, God. I'm already thinking about sitting at that back row. I may even do an Arsenio Hall, like, woo, woo, woo. <laughs> What's amazing is we'll be 10 years older at that point, so we'll give even less fucks. Like, at that, like, I can't wait to meet us 10 years from now. Because if oh, we those give... bras are going to be a great time. No bras. You're not wearing a bra. There's no way I'm wearing underwear. Yeah. Like, it's not possible. <laughs> at all. Yeah. You're going to be in Batman pajama pants. I'm going to be in a loose short because I want to get a nice breeze up there. Like, I, it's... <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, t- us 10 years from now? 
<laughs> I quake yeah. in anticipation. That's all I'll say. <laughs> if nothing else, gosh, that makes me excited to grow old. And what you a know? privilege it is, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And I can't wait to spend it going to uh, across the world. Yep. Well, oh, what are you in town for? A graduation. Friend of yours? Not, not yet. yet. Now, I was specifically making this plea to people in America because we know the situation in America is bad. Of course. Of course. But I like that you've made it international. And now? Well, we have to. It's been said. You're right. So guess what? We're going global. <laughs> we can't we can't put out a plea and say we'll come to your graduation and then right. turn into like turn into a contest or something where it's like fine print where it's like only in the 50 states. <laughs> You know, or whatever it is. How are there? There's fifty. I right? guess we're going to Chad. <laughs> <laughs> I like that we have a listener in Chad. Oh, I'm sure of it. Well, we know. You know where else we do? Mongolia. Shout it again to Mongolia. You never let us down. Yeah. And if any of you are becoming medical examiners, let us know. We'd love to visit your beautiful country. <sighs> oh, that feels that feels right yep. to add that into a. Uh, Oh, the tour. Yep. Oh, are you going to do live shows? No, nope. graduations. We're we're attending graduations. We're bringing sandwiches and our own booze. <laughs> yeah. We're going to have to leave the chips in the car because that will be an... We know sound issues. Mm -hmm. So... Oh, yeah. We get it. We get it. Oh, wow. What a dream that's become. Yep. Uh, so the police uh, called Iris and said, quote, ma'am, there were no eyes, there was no heart, there were no lungs, there was no liver, there were no kidneys. And I know that I'm not a police officer, but I feel like that's not something you tell a mother over the phone. Um, but just, I guess the wording of it sounded very suspicious to Iris. Um, but a funeral was held for Ryan October 26th, 2013 at the Stocks Funeral Home and Kirkwood Chapel in Atlanta, Georgia. But Iris, to this point, is still pushing for answers about her son, and so are Ryan's friends, particularly the friends who are making the documentary. I saw an article, and I don't know if it was their wording or the person who wrote the article, uh, but it was said that the friends who formed a production company um, are, quote, shopping Ryan's story around as a true crime story to garner more interest. And it, it again, more interest in the case or more interest in the documentary. I don't know why the wording of that irks me. Um, it just does. It There's something about it. I don't know. Yeah. Well, my feelings will end up coming out, I'm sure, at some point. Of course. Uh, and so this new documentary is described as, quote, Three guys go to Hollywood um, after immediate success end up in a real-life horror movie when Ryan is mysteriously, brutally murdered. The documentary is being released as a six-part true crime series and features footage from the original Are We Famous Yet? documentary, as well as interviews and discoveries that the friends have made during their own investigation. As I mentioned earlier, I tried to find this documentary... Uh, but it doesn't seem to be available anywhere. So the best I have for us is a synopsis of each episode. 
And yes, I know that things get worded a certain way to entice people to watch your show, but I have some questions. Uh, one episode claims that, quote, after tasting success in New York, they head to Hollywood to pursue their dreams of becoming movie producers. They start making it big immediately, and soon they're working on a multi-million dollar movie. It also describes the group as a overnight success, uh, but we know Iris said that Ryan was living in California for two years, so that doesn't feel like overnight uh, success to me. But also the multi-million dollar movie, they aren't credited as being any part of it. Um, so I just want to know what they actually did with that specific movie. The movie in question is the 2012 action crime drama Black November starring Mickey Rourke, Anne Heche, Kim Basinger, and Vivica A. Fox. Uh, another episode of Dying to be Famous is said to dig, quote, deep into the dark worlds of organ trafficking, cult rituals, white supremacists, and more. Which brings us nicely to the theories. Of course, we have our own theories, but before we get into those, uh, we're going to look at some of the theories the internet has come up with. Okay. Because, you know, that's where the, uh, that's where the sleuths, that's where the sleuths live. Yeah. That's where we live. Yeah. Um... So Iris and Ryan's friends are convinced that his death involves illegal organ trafficking. Even Ryan's estranged husband, Kite, believes that organ trafficking may have been involved. And just a simple Google search of Ryan's name and you are overwhelmed with articles and blog posts about black market organ harvesting. So let's just nip this all in the bud and look into it. The thing that everyone focuses on in this case is the mystery surrounding Ryan's organs. A body being found somewhere is one thing, but one being found without organs is just another whole terrifying thing. And yes, when you first hear that a body was found without organs, your instinct goes right to black market organ trafficking. Or maybe my mind is just a little darker than most. Uh, in 2017, there were over 115,000 people in the United States alone who were in need of a life-saving organ transplant. Another person gets added to that list every 10 minutes. The desperate need for organs is a global epidemic forcing people to turn outside to outside sources in order to live. In short, organ trafficking is the sale and purchase of human organs for transplantation. It originated in India in the 1980s, and in the following years, it was seen in Pakistan, the Philippines, Egypt, and China. Trafficking rings take advantage of people in bad situations. On one hand, they downplay the serious surgery that is involved uh, in organ donation um, and all of the risks that can be involved, like the uh, I've heard of people who had a surgery done and they lost feeling in nerves because something happened with the nerves um, during the surgery. And so you don't know the kinds of things that are going to happen. Uh, people who are desperate uh, because they're starving or about to lose their house or they have a sick family member. These are the people who kind of get taken advantage of in these situations. Um, on the other side, uh, these people also take advantage of those who are desperate to save a loved one. Um, because maybe they're on a waiting list and time is running out. Uh, estimates say about 10,000 or roughly 10% of all transplants 
uh, every year are done so illegally. What? 10%? Yeah. Yeah. Jesus. Uh, Occasionally, unconfirmed reports also mention corneas, plasma, and skin transplants. Liver sales are also on the rise, which is something I never thought I'd say in my lifetime. Uh, But the most trafficked organ is by far the kidney. Mm. The World Health Organization reports that over 7,000 kidneys are harvested illegally every year and that organ trafficking accounts for 5 to 10% of all kidney transplants worldwide. Organ trafficking is a multi-million dollar business. It's seen as a prevalent way to make money as buyers are desperate enough that they're willing to pay exorbitant amounts of money and a kidney is said to go for as much as $200,000. And one may say, why would people not only spend money like that, but also risk their lives for potentially shady operations? Well, in countries such as Canada and the United States, the average wait time for a kidney transplant is about four years. And that's if you even get far enough to get there. Uh, The World Health Organization estimates that 10,000 black market operations involving human organs take place uh, annually, uh, which is more than one every hour. The need for organ transplants is increasing, but there is a decrease in the number of donors, which could lead to some people taking drastic measures to save themselves or a loved one. In the organ trafficking world, there is also something known as transplant tourism, which happens when a wealthy foreigner travels to a developing country in order to receive a life-saving organ transplant. And honestly, the idea of anything black market terrifies me. Yeah. But as a mother... Thank you. If dealing with the black market would save the life of one of my sons, I wouldn't hesitate. I get it. And I think that this is why this is such a lucrative business. If a chicken like me, who is scared of doing even the tiniest thing that could be outside the law, uh, would be willing to throw my principles out the window in order to save one of my kids, I bet there are a lot of people who feel the same way, not to mention the people who aren't bothered uh, about the idea of upsetting police like I am. And that's a bigger issue to have or conversation, I guess, to have at some point. Uh, I'm not saying I'd ever be able to afford a black market organ, um, but love is such a powerful thing. And if someone you love is in harm's way, I believe a lot of people would pay whatever possible to save that person. Uh, The patients in these cases typically come from rich countries such as Japan, Saudi Arabia, the United States or Western Europe. Developing countries are the main targets for organ donors as they don't have the resources to educate their citizens on the negative effects of donating organs illicitly, as well as their higher rates of poverty, uh, providing the desperate need for quick money. A study was done that showed that 98% of donors were male and that more than 90% were in the lowest income class. In 2015, the Philippines had over 20% of the population living under the poverty line, which led to it being one of the top five destinations for organ trafficking in the world. And with the global job loss due to the COVID-19 pandemic, there has been a huge surge in organ trafficking. One such example is a man from India who chose to remain anonymous. 
he took out a loan uh, to buy a power loom in the hopes of joining the local sari production industry. But then the pandemic hit and suddenly the 32-year-old went months without working and was then no longer able to pay his debts or support his wife and son. So he did the only thing he could do to get money and that was sell one of his kidneys. The man posted on a Facebook group uh, which was shown, uh, it, which, it's shown an increase in posts since lockdown began. Between April and September of 2020, posts from sellers more than doubled compared to posts in the eight months before that. So in cases like that example, sometimes the donors are being, are exploited into selling their organs consensually, but sometimes the donors don't even realize they're donating at all. In the United States, many patients are victims of medical battery. They agreed to a specific procedure and another was performed or they were misinformed about what the actual procedure would be taking place. In 2001, health officials in China noticed an increase in transplant activity in the country and that wait times had become unusually short. Websites started popping up that advertised hearts, lungs, and kidneys for sale. And since patients had the ability to book in advance, it seemed that donors were being killed on demand. Oh my God. It turns out that forced organ harvesting was happening in Chinese prisons with organs being removed from executed prisoners. Oh my God. And I know that doesn't seem right, but no worries they started to phase that practice out in 2014. Oh, boy. Oh, how how evolved. Yeah. Oh. I like that it was 13 years after they thought there was an issue. Yeah. Um, but hey, at least they started something, I guess. Uh, so there was also a trafficking ring in China recently that tricked the families of accident victims, asking them to consent to donate their loved one's organs. And while the families would sign the paperwork, it turned out that the paperwork was fake and that their loved one was then wheeled out of the hospital in the middle of the night, put into a van that looked like an ambulance, uh, where doctors then removed the organs. The organs were then sold to individuals or to other hospitals who were contacted secretly by other members of the trafficking ring. In this particular case, six men were arrested for deliberately destroying corpses, all six, which included four high-ranking doctors, were sentenced to jail terms between 10 and 28 months. <laughs> wow. What justice. Yeah. Uh, but then there are the donors who are attacked and or murdered for their organs. The idea of illegally harvesting organs is often written off as just a conspiracy theory. Unfortunately, it does legit happen. In Mexico, organ trafficking rings thrive off of violent murders in order to procure organs. Over the past 20 years, over 600 young women were murdered in Juarez, Mexico. Their bodies were found throughout the deserts with organs extracted from their bodies. And it's not just young females who are targeted for their organs. Traffickers are also targeting children. In 2014, members of a prominent Mexican drug cartel known as the Knights Templar. I don't know if that, that feels wrong, but that's what it said. But that feels like, isn't that from uh, National Treasure? Uh, yeah, there's, yeah. Because yeah. that's, I everything there, relates to Nicolas Cage in my mind. Yeah. 
Nicholas I think Cage that there's is not like part a, of a trafficking thing. <laughs> thank you very much. I think the Knights Templar is also just like an offshoot of, um, like the Masons, Freemasons. Oh, the Freemasons. I, I believe. I believe. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, uh, members of this group were arrested for conducting a child organ trafficking ring, where children were kidnapped throughout Mexico and taken to rented homes where their organs were extracted. Jesus. And it's not just Mexico. It is estimated that 150 people are killed for their organs every day in China. Given what we know about organ harvesting, do we think that's what happened to Ryan Singleton? I know we'll get into this more uh, shortly with theories, but no, I don't think so. For one thing, the organs need to be surgically removed from the body in order to be viable so you would see incision lines as opposed to jagged marks that look like animal teeth. Right. Uh, I should also note, uh, I have not personally seen photos of the body. Thank goodness. Uh, I'm just basing this off of what was written in the autopsy report. So not only would the patient need to be prepped, but in order to take some of those organs, the person would need to be on life support or the organs would fail and then become useless. Usually when an organ is taken for transplantation, the there is a recipient waiting. And I think Ryan showing up when he did wouldn't have given an organ harvester time to quickly find someone willing to pay for it. And who knows, It is is it possible someone attacked him, stole one of his kidneys and left him out in the desert and he just never regained consciousness? Sure. But I'm just not buying the idea that someone killed him specifically for all of his organs. But of course, his mother Iris believes otherwise, and Iris has spent the past eight years of her life trying to find out what happened to her son. But without any concrete leads, no one has ever been charged with his death, and I truly believe unless someone comes forward to admit having been part of it, the case will never be solved as... Uh, well, the case will never be solved on physical evidence alone because there simply isn't any. Right. Ryan's estranged husband, Kite, said, quote, I believe he was taken from Baker and later put back there. I just don't think he passed out there and was there for two and a half months. Another group that's interested in solving Ryan's case is El Elgin Community College. Ryan's case is the focus of the college's inaugural Cold Case Investigations course, which launched through a partnership with the Cold Case Investigative Research Institute. Elgin Community College is one of 27 colleges and universities in the United States that features students trying to solve cold cases through the Cold Case Institute. Ten students, who all are studying criminal justice and their instructor, work as real investigators. They interview witnesses, review police reports, and examine evidence, which sounds like a dream so if you're listening, Institute, sign me up. <laughs> uh, these students are split into groups, each with different tasks. Some look at media reports about Ryan's disappearance, while others track down and interview witnesses and law enforcement officials who investigated the case. The course is a repeatable elective course, which means students can take it again and again if they want. So again, sign me up. <laughs> sign me up. Yeah. Uh, and since I somehow had never heard about it before, I wanted to look into the Institute with a cold case investigative research Institute side note. <laughs> the Institute was founded in 2004 by Cheryl McCollum. 
it is a registered nonprofit that assists families and law enforcement with unsolved homicides, missing persons, and kidnapping cases. It features over 600 forensic professionals and 5,000 student volunteers nationwide who have, since its foundation, donated more than 4 million hours to helping victims of crime. The Institute also came up with the National Wine Bottle Project, which features pictures of victims on wine bottles in an attempt to locate witnesses and draw attention to cold cases. So it's like the adult version of the milk carton missing photos, and I think that's brilliant. They've tapped into our audience. They have. They have. (laughs) Um, My only question here, how can I be part of this institute? And since I'm asking questions, that leads me to a section that I have so perfectly titled, Questions That I Have. I love it. So to Iris, Ryan's mother, the autopsy report stated that no tattoos were found on Ryan, but Iris claims that Ryan did in fact have tattoos. I'm curious where the tattoos were located so I can figure out why none were found. If they were on a spot on his body that were in direct sunlight for months, is it possible they faded so much that a pathologist couldn't see them? Possibly. Were they on a part of his body that potentially an animal took that part of the the flesh? Maybe. I just have the question. Uh, To his estranged husband, Kite, what was the phone call that uh, he made to Iris saying that he thought Ryan might be in danger? What was the conversation you allegedly had with Ryan the day he went missing? Uh, Which brings me to a quick estranged husband side note. I don't know what exactly happened, uh, because the internet wants me to pay for a subscription in order to view it, and I'm too cheap to deal with that nonsense. But apparently there was some sort of legal dispute between Kite and Avis Rent-A-Car. I know it was filed in December 2016, and that there was a hearing, but that's about all I know. Maybe Ryan used one of Kite's credit cards to rent the car, or maybe since Ryan and Kite were still legally married at the time, maybe Avis wants Kite to pay Ryan's debt? I just don't know. It just adds uh, to the pile of questions that I already have. Uh, Such as, to the friend who filed the missing persons report, how long did you search for Ryan? Where did you go? Did you contact police who supposedly dropped him off at the gas station? To the person working at the gas station. Did you see Ryan? What did he buy? Can I see the surveillance tapes? (laughs) Yes. Even Iris has publicly asked to see the footage herself and hasn't. And if it's not too much to ask, I would also like to see a full vehicle inspection. Why did the car break down? Did he just run out of gas? Was there an issue with the car? Did it overheat? Why did he leave the car? To the officers who allegedly picked Ryan up, I would like to read their full report. Even Iris has been trying to see it and still hasn't. It took her years to be able to see a copy of the autopsy report. I read that the patrolmen claimed they found Ryan wandering around the road looking for his car and that only after they couldn't find it did they take him to the Arco station. But why was he looking for the car? How did he get out of the car and then wander around so far and then suddenly try and go back to it? It doesn't make sense because everything else I find 
says they found him walking somewhere because the car had broken down. But they're saying he was looking for the car. Just doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I also want to know who those officers were, as their names are not listed anywhere. And I know some people are thinking, why are you questioning the police so hard, Christy? Well, dear people, I'll tell you why. And by tell you, I mean take you on a similar case tangent. Thank you. Philippe Santos was born January 1st, 1979 in Mexico. He illegally moved to the United States in 2000, so he didn't have any official paperwork. I only mention this as it is relevant to what happened to him. On October 1st, 2003, at approximately 6.30 a.m., Philippe was driving to work with his two brothers when he was involved in a minor car accident in Naples, Florida. Deputy Steve Calkins of Collier County Sheriff's Department arrived on the scene and cited Philippe for reckless driving and for driving without a license or insurance. The deputy put Philippe in the back of his patrol car and that was the last time Philippe was seen. Later that day, Philippe's boss contacted the county jail in order to post bail, but discovered Philippe had never been booked. Calkins uh, claimed because Philippe was polite and cooperative, he changed his mind about the arrest and simply dropped him off at a local Circle K convenience store. The other driver from the accident said that Calkins was agitated about Philippe's lack of documentation, saying, quote, he just stated he was tired of pulling people over that didn't have licenses. Two weeks after Calkins uh, submitted his incident report, Philippe's family filed a missing persons report as well as a complaint against Calkins. An investigation somehow cleared the deputy of any wrongdoing. Philippe Santos has never been found. He was only 21 years old when he went missing. Mm. And if Philippe's case enrages you, buckle up for another one. Terrence Williams was born January 17, 1976 in Tennessee. He was a father to four children and had recently moved to Florida to be near his mother. Terrence spoke with his roommate on the phone on the evening of January 11, 2004. Terrence decided to drive to a party at a co-worker's house, despite the fact that his car res registration had expired and that his driver's license had been taken away previously for driving under the influence. The next day, Terrence's roommate became concerned that Terrence hadn't arrived back home, so the roommate contacted Terrence's mother, which led to his family filing a missing, missing persons report. Terrence's aunt was able to track down Terrence's Cadillac, which had been towed from Naples Memorial Cemetery after obstructing traffic. The tow report was signed by, are you ready for it, Deputy Steve Calkins. Oh, boy. The family contacted the sheriff's department and found that Deputy Calkins hadn't filed an arrest report or an incident report. Mm -hmm. So Terrence's mother contacted the cemetery where the car was found, and they claimed to witness Calkins pulling Terrence over and asking him for ID. Cemetery workers stated Calkins patted Terrence down, put him in the back of his patrol car. Before driving off, Calkins asked the workers if he could leave the Cadillac in the lot. Deputy was later seen returning to the cemetery between 15 to 60 minutes later and moving the Cadillac from the parking lot to the side of the road. The car keys were found on the ground beside the car. 
Terrence's family repeatedly called the sheriff's department asking to speak with Calkins, but he claimed to have no memory of making any arrest or having any cars towed on the day of Terrence's disappearance. A few days later, Calkins' supervisors asked him to submit an incident report in which he claims he came into contact with Terrence at 12.15 p.m. after noticing that his car was driving in distress. Calkins further claimed he followed Terrence to the cemetery parking lot and that Terrence asked for a ride to a nearby Circle K convenience store because he was late for work. So the deputy claims that he dropped Terrence off and that Terrence said the registration for the car was in the glove compartment. So deputy drives to the Cadillac and checks the registration uh, only to find that it was not in the car. And in Calkins' own words, he said he felt deceived. Calkins then used his work cell phone to call the Circle K and ask to speak with Terrence. But whoever answered the phone said Terrence doesn't work there. Calkins then in the, called in the Cadillac's license plate number and found the plates to be expired. However, there was no surveillance footage of Terrence or the deputy at the Circle K, and phone records for the deputy's cell phone showed no calls to the Circle K. Employees at the store were questioned, and none of them could place Terrence or the deputy at the scene. Terrence's mother filed a complaint against De Deputy Calkins, and the Circle K where Calkins allegedly dropped Terrence off at was approximately 4 miles or 6.4 kilometers from the Circle K that he allegedly dropped Philippe Williams off at. Or, sorry, Philippe Santos. Uh, and if we aren't already suspicious of Deputy Calkins, a recording was found on his on his of his call to dispatch requesting a tow of Terence's Cadillac. In the recording, Calkins described the car as abandoned and blocking the road. He even went so far as to joke with the operator, saying, quote, "Maybe he's out in there in the cemetery. He'll come back and his car will be gone." And at one point, he even referred to the car as a quote homey Cadillac. Approximately oh. 20 minutes after calling for the tow at 1.12 p.m., Calkins requested a background check on Terrence Williams. Since the main person of interest in Terrence's case was a police officer, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement and the FBI were called in to work the case. A forensic investigation of the patrol car was done and cadaver dogs were used to survey the area. No further evidence was turned up. Deputy Calkins was fired from the department in 2004 for providing conflicting information about both missing persons cases. And since being fired, he has just refused to speak with investigators about either case. No criminal charges have ever been filed. Calkins just nicely moved to Iowa. Terrence Williams has still not been found. He was 27 years old at the time of his disappearance. But both men were last seen in police custody. The same officer, I might add. Um, and this same officer claimed to drop the men off at a Circle K store, which all feels too coincidental. And the fact that the cop is getting away with it is enraging to me. Yeah. Uh, in September 2018, actor, director, producer Tyler Perry offered a $200,000 reward for any information leading to the location of Philippe Santos and Terrence Williams, or to an arrest in the case. 
Also in 2018, Terrence's mother filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Deputy Calkins. Well, I guess he's no longer deputy, just Calkins, uh, which found that he was not responsible for Terrence's disappearance due to a lack of evidence. The finding is currently being contested. Which leads me to a brief synchronicity side note. Synchronicity. Which I live for because alliteration. Thank you. Uh, the lawyer working with Terrence's mother is civil rights lawyer Benjamin Crump, who was part of one of the documentaries that I watched while researching episode 20, Tupac Shakur. Hello. Uh, in the end, I'm afraid that my theories might not be what the dear people hope for. I think that either Ryan left the gas station in an attempt to waste time while waiting for his ride, and due to the heat and probably his lack of food and or water, he could have become disoriented and passed out in the desert. Do I think that Ryan was targeted so that his organs could be harvested? I don't. I think it's fairly believable that predators or scavengers came along and forgive me for being gross, but consumed his organs. Animal instinct is to go for protein, and they are going to find it in the stomach, which is soft and doesn't have any bones that they have to get around. So it's probably the first place an animal would go. However, I find it odd that if his body was just lying there, that it would have taken more than two months for someone to come across it. The hikers who found him. One was a local resident. Did he not hike that particular area often? When was the last time he hiked the area? But I think it's more than possible he could have suffered from some sort of stomach wound, like a stab wound or a gunshot, and maybe after being attacked he was left out in the desert where he was found, or maybe he was left in one location and moved there later. But who would assault him? I mean, we could guess anything. Did he come across someone in the small town who was intimidated by Ryan's 6'5 stature? Maybe. And what about the friend he called? What if... And I'm just speculating here. Of course. What if the friend did find Ryan? They talked. The guy tried to convince Ryan to stay in Los Angeles and finish filming their documentary. Ryan refused, saying he was going home to Georgia. The friend got mad. Something happened. He drove home and overnight came up with the plan. I'll call tomorrow, do a missing persons report, and then it wash my hands of it. Again, speculation. Because that's the only thing with this case. If someone was involved, the only way we will ever find out the truth is if the person comes forward and admits what they did or what they saw. With zero physical evidence and no leads, it seems as though this, there is just nowhere else for this case to go. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm Christy Oxborough. Wow. Really stellar work now too much i'm not too much i'm just enough now i need to take a quick break because i need to fill up my wine because i have some batshit theories (laughs) (laughs) i can't wait truly that i cannot wait to share i've taken extensive notes of course we're gonna get into them two seconds Uh, we'll be right back (laughs) 
What's up, everybody? This is Lauren Ash, and I hope you're enjoying this episode of True Crime and Cocktails Famous Fatalities Edition. A couple of quick reminders. If you're looking for any of the visuals Christy mentions in this or any of our episodes of the podcast, make sure to follow us at True Crime and Cocktails on Instagram. There she posts a case file with all the relevant visuals for each episode of the show. If that's not enough for you, you want a little bit more? Go to our website, truecrimeandcocktails.com. There, Christy posts extensive virtual case files. This is literally everything she finds in her research. It's a treasure trove of deep dives, and it's all there for your enjoyment. Also on the website, you can find our full unedited Zoom episodes of the show if you'd like to watch rather than listen. And make sure to give us a follow on Facebook at True Crime and Cocktails, Twitter at Not Detectives, and the most important piece of information, if you like the show, please, wherever you listen to it, give us a nice rating. Go on to Apple, leave us a nice review. I know it sounds like a silly cliche, but the truth is it really goes a long way in this crazy podcast world, and your support means the world to us. But enough about all that. Get yourself another drink, sit back, and enjoy. Enjoy the rest of the show. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Uh, where we left off, I said I was I was teasing my batshit crazy theories. Okay, hold on. I need a, I need I a glug of Kimmy C. Hold on. Okay, I got a few things I want to say. Yeah, these are all. This is speculation. It's speculation. I'm alleging. I'm alleging. I and I'm truly alleging. All jokes aside, because there obviously is not a lot of evidence in this case. So yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, going with what we have. Correct. The first thing that stood out to me in this case is the cops, because I'm gonna state something, and this is is not alleging. I would go on record as saying the police don't have a great track record with black people. (laughs) I don't know where you're getting that from, but I guess. Thank you very much. I think that's a fair statement to make. So for me, the thing that that I I know I I sound like I'm being glib, very seriously, when when you started saying that it it, it binged me, binged me? It (laughs) binged me. I don't know where that came from, but... It, it, it hit me right away when you said yeah. that it was like cops were driving him around to find his car. I'm like, that's weird. I'm not, we're not going to get into a, a police conversation that's a much, much bigger, more political conversation than we have time for. But it just struck me right away because I was like, that doesn't seem like a common occurrence to me. So I sure. felt chilled when you got into those other cases because it does feel like odd it's just odd to me that it's like well he was wandering around so we picked him we picked him up we tried to help him find his car and when he couldn't find it we dropped him at a gas station because the other thing to your point too is one okay let's say that's true for a second sure if he was so intoxicated or high that he drove off the road or his car legitimately broke down but he was so high that he didn't know and I only state that because there was potentially amphetamines in his system sure again I'm just going with this as a theory the police aren't just gonna let him go right right so to me if his car broke down off the highway the only reason why they wouldn't be able to find it is because he was too inebriated in some way to remember. Because if he was like, because didn't you say it was like right right at that other exit? Yeah. 
he would know that it broke down at another exit. So they would just check all the exits within a, you know, whatever span, right? Like, to me, it doesn't add up that he just didn't know where his car was. He was lost, and they were, quote, helping him find it. I could believe that he may be so high or drunk or whatever that he couldn't find it. But then the cops aren't just going to let him go. They're going to know that he's high or drunk or whatever. Yeah. And again, there is a little bit of history where I wouldn't say that that police are necessarily approaching situations like that in the most uh, kid glove manner. So there's something up with that to begin with to me. There's Mm. just something that doesn't add up there. The fact that we don't know who they are, the fact that there's, you know, some secrecy there Mm. feels very strange to me. Um, So that's the first big thing. And this skull fracture, is it an accident? Or was this a situation where, speculation, there is a random man wandering the streets? I know that he wasn't wearing a shirt when his body was found. Right. Was his shirt off because it's extremely effing hot there? That's reasonable. So was there a shirtless man wandering the streets? Cops decide to pull him over. What are you doing? It's so hot. Why are you walking around? He's like, I can't find my car. Let's say for the sake of this theory, he's high on drugs. They notice that he's showing signs that he's high on drugs. They, of course, are like, well, we've got to take this person in. Does he put up some sort of fight? They get into an altercation. He falls and hits his head. Or in in attempting to restrain him, they hit his head and somehow he accidentally dies. Either before or after the moment he was apparently caught on camera at that gas station. More than possible. I also want to know, was he caught on camera? Great point. If that footage has never been released, why do we believe that it exists? Because if we've learned anything doing this show, it's that you, again, like the X-Files, trust no one. Yeah. So to me, I think it's plausible that a set of cops could concoct a story saying they did all of this leading up to him being in that gas station. When I'm saying, what if they met up with him as he came out of that gas station? So he was on that footage, but they just backed it up. They backed their alibi up. To say they dropped him off and then he was seen there when in reality they saw him coming out of there. You know what I'm saying? I know. Could there have been an right? Could there have been an altercation in the gas station with the employee? The cops get called. They show up. Or they just happen to be there. Right? Right. They try to defuse a situation. He hits his head, something happens, they hide the body. And then months later, potentially they hid the body somewhere and then moved it. That also does not seem impossible to me. It's true. Again, the quote of, they find bodies in the desert all the time. Thank you very much. So, that's the first thing. Sure. Second thing. The next thing I wrote down in all caps is, what's up with this friend? Because... He's really painting himself in a very good light when he tells this story. Well, he called me and he was supposed to stay with me, but then he changed plans. And then he said he needed money, so I immediately sent some into his bank account. And then he called me and said he needed me to pick him up three hours away, so I dropped everything to go and get him. And when I couldn't find him, I just came back and then the next day called the police. A few things. 
in Los Angeles, California, people don't drive their friends to the fucking airport, okay? <laughs> like, <laughs> that's the first thing. I'm like, you're just willing to, out of nowhere, drop everything and drive three hours? Now, granted, I would, of course, do that of for my friends. Of course you would. Of course, and I'm not doubting that this guy may have been willing to do that, too. But it just feels odd to me that he was willing to drop everything, mm-hmm. drive three hours, look around a bit, and then just drives back to L.A. three hours? Here's my theory. Again, alleging speculation. Of course. We don't know. Does he pick him up? Does he meet up with him right away? Pick him up. Bring him back to L.A. Does something happen either on that car ride or once he's back in L.A.? And that's why the phone call was made about the missing persons report the next day. It's because he would have picked him up. I know that the deputy said he was walking out of that gas station around 2.20 p.m. Yeah. It's feasible he could have been back in L.A. by, let's say, takes three hours to get there. Let's say his buddy picks him up at 5.30. He could be back in L.A. 8.30 or 9.30 p.m. if there's rush hour or they stop to get food or something. Right. Is it possible that something happens between 9.30 p.m. that day and 9.30 a.m. the next day? There's a lot of hours unaccounted for then. And then at some point, that body gets taken back because it was left very close to where he was last seen, which feels like if someone was trying to make something look like, you know, a missing person, right? They could potentially leave it very close to where he was first or where, excuse me, where he was last seen. Yeah, I think that there's something also there, which brings me to my next potential theory, alleging speculation. This husband. Where was he when he made that call? To Ryan's mom. I was because no, exactly. And he said to her on that call, he's in California. He's in danger. There is the reason Ryan was in danger there because he was also there. Interesting. Because there's nothing that's going to make you look less culpable than saying, uh-oh, I hope he's not out there. There's, oh, he's he could be in danger in California. Where I'm not. <laughs> right? God, I hope that's exactly how he put it. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like it's like, is it possible that he had something to do with this? Is it possible that he, they had some sort of fight? I mean, they hadn't been split for that long. And it sounds like they had a very kind of tumultuous relationship. So I offer that again, you know, is it also possible, and this is kind of bringing those last two kind of ideas together, is it possible Ryan was scared of his ex-husband? Is it possible that this friend picked him up and then he said, you got to cover for me file a missing persons report was ryan still alive at that time and trying to hide out either from his husband or from someone else was he still alive if he was if he if his body wasn't found for 74 days and we know that bodies can decompose in that kind of heat very quickly could he have been alive for 20 of those days hiding out in la hiding out somewhere else was his friend in on this trying to cover for him so that he could try and get away from whoever was 
who knows? And then potentially he couldn't outrun whoever this person was, whether it be somebody that we know about or somebody we don't know about. Right. Again, I offer that. That was a thought I had. Um, another thing I wanted to offer is I would give your kids a kidney so you don't need to worry about the black market. <laughs> now, if two I of like your kids... that that was in your notes, but it's that I got stars next to that one. Yeah. If if it was two of your kids that needed kidneys, I, I'm so sorry. I only have one I think I could spare. But just know we're we're, we're going to exhaust other options before we have to turn to the illegal organ trade. That's a promise I'm going to make to you. I mean, um, well, that is beautiful. But I mean, I can I can give one. Of course. Again, I'm just saying we'll figure it out. Like, don't worry. I, I'm, I'm totally kidding. Don't, I know what you're the sentiment start, you're making. But. Don't start looking into black market yet. My kids are perfectly healthy, by the way. Just, Everybody's fine. Yeah. Call me before you of start course. trying to research how to get on the dark web. That's of all course. I'm asking. If this show ends with me finally going on the dark web for the first time, I can't handle it. I would. I no, no. Even the I'm thought of, of it. just browsing. No, thanks. No, thanks. Last thought I had. Something is weird about this documentary because you've tried to look for it. I've tried to look for it. The two of us are internet sleuths. We can find, if you give me 20 minutes and you're like, I think my boyfriend's cheating with a girl named Daisy, I can tell you where she was born and what her birthday is within 15 <laughs> minutes. Like, we're good at the internet, okay? Yeah. The fact that this thing, it, it feels like they were advertising something that didn't exist yet. And it feels like Interesting. there was an, a narrative put onto the internet and put into the, into the public about this kind of organ trafficking kind yeah. of theory. But when you read the autopsy report, and I know there's been other you know, sources who have gone over the autopsy yeah. report and all stated it does appear that the organs were removed very unfortunately and it's, it's awful and very gruesome but very unfortunately because of animals right and decomposition etc isn't it interesting that the narrative because when we first learned about this case it was someone was found in the desert and all of their organs had been removed that's the like kind of story that's gotten out yeah there. that's the narrative that's kind of been put out there and then you find out oh there's a documentary about this but wait a minute where can we find it i mean i was downloading a million different apps where it said it was streaming and then you'd get you you download the app and then it wouldn't be there so i don't know whether that was a matter of they were trying to sell it to them and then maybe they were saying it was on there when it wasn't or they had a deal that fell through who knows but there's just something about that that feels a little fishy to me and the fact that they that they were saying you know this documentary about friends who went to LA and then made it right away and we kind of know that that's not actually what was true and we also know that he left he came for a couple years but then he went back to New York and he went back to Georgia and like yeah. That's not the narrative at all. And it, it yeah. it's is as much as I would love to watch a black entourage show, and I again would encourage anyone write that show. Um think about that. Entourage is a show about, you know, a character who is a very kind of and now I didn't watch that much of it, but 
the broad strokes, it's a very kind of entitled, privileged, spoiled boy and his rise to fame and his hangers-on friends who have their own degrees of fame. Yeah. It compare like, if you start to break it down, it's not a great look that it's like you compare yourselves to like, that's what you aspire to be. You want to be famous or you want to be famous for hanging on to somebody who's famous. And the fact that you're willing to take footage of your friend who has mysteriously died and try and turn this fun documentary about, you know, your 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 attempt to become that and then turn it into true crime because, you know, true crime is hot right now. Again, not a great look, in my opinion. Do I think that that's proof that they could have tried to have something to do with his death in order to facilitate a film? I sure hope not, because that's pretty extreme. And I'm not suggesting that, because there's also no proof of that. And they would have to be pretty good at um, covering up a lot in order to get away with it this this far and this well. So I'm not suggesting that. But am I suggesting that it's possible that they would hold on to information because they want to have a big reveal in their documentary? I could see that. I'm not saying that they have, again, alleging all speculation. None of this is, you know, none of this is defamation. I'm simply offering that when you come at things from that angle, it just feels like, do I believe that somebody in, in that world could know something that could potentially lead to a lead, at least? I do. I do think that's possible, and I think that that's, that's uh, unfortunate because, again, you know, if that was true and someone was trying to hang on to information to try and monetize having that information, that would be extremely gross, obviously, oh, but yeah. also extremely Hollywood. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, yeah, wouldn't be a total shocker. Um, but that's, you know, again... Not saying that that's true. I'm not uh, pointing fingers at anybody. I don't even know half of these people, but you know what I'm saying. I just yeah. feel like something feels off with that to me. Um, and does. and how 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 tragic. I mean, again, this is someone who is very loved, uh, whose mother certainly uh, is, loved him very much and is looking for justice. And of course, that's what we want on this show more than anything is for these people to get justice the families of these of these victims to get justice so i don't know if you have any additional theories or not but that's kind of what i bring to the table um i like what you're bringing to the table i don't i i just i i really don't believe that it has something to do with organ harvesting of any kind i don't Again, once I saw that the spot he was found, if he was just trying to, like, waste some time waiting for his friend, he could have had just picked a road. If he just followed that road, that's where he ended up. But also at the same time, he'd already walked several miles in that intense heat after his car broke down. So I don't, like, even if it's boring to sit at a gas station for three hours, I still don't think he's going to be like, you know what? Yeah, let's go walk outside in the intense heat for the sake of why not. Um, Could he have run into somebody who didn't like him? It was a very small town. 
he would have stood out because he was six foot five. So it and a model, so also very beautiful. I'm assuming, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. So it's just, uh, I mean, I'm so torn as to whether I think he just kind of walked out and then after being out in the sun that too long was just like, I just need to sit and then just kind of passed out and never woke up again. Although that feels um, extreme. And again, I just don't believe that his body would have been there and no one would have noticed it, especially with a local went hiking who is what who found him it's like really if he was there for that long you didn't walk past that area but again has anybody been was anybody in that area that can prove he was not there at the time at any point in between there that the body was potentially moved um i just again so many questions i want to know about the car why did it stop why did he get out of the car there are just so many questions that I don't think will be answered, but I'm immediately uncertain of the police. Yeah. Immediately. Um, I just want to know, is there actual footage of him at that store or not? I don't know. There's just so many questions, and I, more and more, when we do this, I want to not only get the young listeners into STEM. I also would like someone to get into something to make us a time machine. That's the other thing. That's how yeah. we need to, we need this time machine because um, I came up with a name for us as a travel through time duo who go around and give hugs. Um, the hug smugglers. That's right. And I just <laughs> That's feel right. like if a if a young person listening um, or someone who's later in life that's like, you know what? I do dig science. <laughs> dig science. Oh, boy. Uh, she's, she's Ross, all right. Um, if there's someone who's like, I would like to dabble in time machinery. Uh, I, I would like that time machine to be made because I would like to go through time as the hug smugglers blankets all around it's what i want it should also be noted the time machine does need a dryer oh correct in it so that we can yes. heat the t heat the blankets as we go yes then for example when we get back to marilyn monroe it's ready to go we just literally right. run out of that we run out of that time machine we we throw it around her and yeah. we just we just hug her in that warm blanket Similarly, you know, with Anna yes. Nicole Smith or something. But what I'm also liking is you haven't said this, but I feel like I'm reading your mind is that mm -hmm. in a case like this. Now, granted, everyone can use a hug. Don't get me wrong. But in a case like this, do we go back to that time? And if we see something untoward going on, we throw the blanket and we run. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like we're not getting in the, you know. Do we try and say, yeah. do we, are, are the blankets multi-purpose or do yeah. we have like a, like a blow dart? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, or, or, or like a slingshot or something. Yeah. I, I like the idea of taking something so far scientifically advanced as a time machine and yeah. a weapon so low technically advanced as a blow dart or a slingshot. Um, I like the combination of that. I because and that's the other thing. 
People are like, you should be using the time machine to go back in time and stop all of these crimes. And I say, yes, but have you seen the butterfly effect? I know, I know. And then we'd also be changing and then we'd cause a paradox. I know. Listen. Yeah. It comes with risks. It comes with risks. Yeah. But, you know, I also feel like do we take the risks? Do we cause a paradox? Are we, you know what I mean? Like, if, do we just go for it? If time is going to implode because of a paradox, it was probably us. <laughs> and with, our, sorry, with our egg salad sandwiches. Sorry. Shouting at someone's graduation. Connie! <laughs> yes! Yeah. Oh. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I've also been doing some looking into... We don't have time for this, but I've been doing some looking into time travel and I'm not kidding. (laughs) I'm not kidding. And did you know, I learned this recently, clocks on planes work differently and clocks in space work differently. So I haven't fully been able to get my head around what exactly that means and I'm sure there's people right now who are listening who are screaming at me and I'm so sorry because I know I'm completely shitting the bed in how to explain this but the concept of of losing time or gaining time or time travel existing exists it's then trying to capitalize on that science and then how to expand that and that's when my brain started to hurt and also my recently officially diagnosed ADHD kicked in and I was just like, oh, something over here. Like it was, then I got distracted. But of course, I'm going to get back into it because unfortunately I also then went down a rabbit hole of videos of people saying that they're from the future. And then some of it I was just like, I mean, I, to quote the X-Files again, I want to believe. Here's the thing. I am the audience for these people because I am the Mulder here, okay? You're the Scully. We all know this. I am the Mulder going, I'm ready. I believe you. Let's get into it. But then they'll say something and I'm like, oh, guys, I just know that's not true. Like, you know what I mean? Like, but I have taken some notes because there's some things that some some of these people from the future have said are going to happen very soon. So I've taken notes and we'll see if they come true. Um, I don't have high hopes. Sure. But wouldn't it be great? Oh, wouldn't it yeah. be great if they did? Because then I've got to, then it's like we just have to start spamming these people going, tell us what you know about the technology. Share with us the knowledge. Share with, with the people that we know who are getting into STEM the knowledge. Yeah. You know? Get us in the time yeah. machine with the built-in dryer, with the slingshot on the dashboard in case we want to use it, you Um, know? If I could also request, we're going to need somewhere in there with some sort of a date book or calendar to keep track of all of the, the, the graduations we need to attend. I would also like somewhere, uh, that just a perfect box of nuggets fits. You know, like something in the dashboard, you just pull out this thing and people are like, it just holds this rectangle. It's like, it holds a very specific rectangle that I would like, ooh, and then there are small holes around it to hold the sauces. 
I guess I should also go on record now as saying, if you're currently a medical examiner, let us know when your graduation was. (laughs) (laughs) And if we somehow get the ability, we'll come back. But then in order to avoid the paradox, we will have to, or will we have to disguise ourselves? Because they won't know who we were back then. That's true. To anyone who is a medical examiner and listening, if you remember some wacky broths at your graduation. Yeah. I'm not saying it wasn't us. We don't even know yet, is the thing. We don't know. We've gone so far off the rails with this, and I know that we're going to get some real real colorful fan letters about this which i can't wait i can't wait like people saying they've seen us at different events throughout their lives and i love that because i think that's joyful (laughs) i i can't wait for the photo where it's like blur and they're like was that is that blur i see red is that your hair is that you and then it's like might be what i would love is for someone to just zoom super in on like the last supper and like in the deep bg there's you and i (laughs) with our with our helmets and just going like we've gone back too far (laughs) that's amazing i like that you have us in helmets safety first Oh, I meant with, uh, sorry, with the with the beer, with the cans. Oh, like you those. Got, you got two palm gay cans and then the tube. I, I didn't you, mean for safety. I, I, I don't thought know. you I meant just, for safety, but for booze yeah. is even better. You've um, got palm bays. I've got course. cut waters again in the tube. That's, so sorry to interrupt, but I do have to say, yeah. we get so much amazing fan art, which we do also display on our website, truecrimeandcocktails.com. If, if we have not, if you've sent us someone we haven't got us, haven't gotten it yet or, or haven't responded to you, Send it again to theories at truecrimeandcocktails.com because we love the fan art. It's so great. And this is my latest plea. Yeah. The Last Supper, but with Christy and I in the deep background looking like complete yahoos. That's my latest dream. I beg. Yeah, of course. Right? Oh, and if the time machine could also have some sort of mini fridge. (laughs) Yes. I guess, I guess what I'm saying is a time machine RV. <laughs> what when I'm are we going to get real about actually getting an RV is the bigger question. Oh my God, you and I driving around in an RV sounds like a nightmare. Helmets for everyone outside of the RV. Do you know I actually feel very confident driving large vehicles? Thank God, because I don't. I drove a moving van from Chicago back to Toronto once the whole way. I'm, I feel very confident in, like, a very large vehicle. I know it's wild. Well, brace yourself, summer of 2022, <laughs> because we're going to be driving through. Well, probably not the summer. That would be the worst heat. But maybe, maybe like, early 2022, where we can map something out. And then we're going to drive an RV around. Yep. Yep. But stay and you know who sells you know who sells RVs? Mark Wahlberg. He has a he has a he side business not. selling. Yes, he does. I'm not kidding. That man diversifies. Anyway, that's another story. Uh I guess I could just also just as a as a postscript to that fan art ask, I guess 
us in the deep background of any kind of iconic historical image would be great. Sure. Great. Um, Christy Oxborough, thank you so much for your work on this case. It really is, you know, I know that we've been having a lot of fun in this episode, which is a joy, uh, but it is such a tragic story, and it really is so sad that it just feels, again, any of the cases where it feels like it's such a dead end, There's, it doesn't feel like you're going to get justice. Those are the ones that confound us the most. This does feel like an unsolved mystery. I don't know whether if Unsolved Mysteries is going to come back if they would consider this one, but I do feel like this is right in that wheelhouse. So yeah. I do hope, and I do hope that that documentary comes out. I do hope that they release it, and if especially if there is potential information being sat on. Um, I just, of course, as always, hope for justice for the victims and the families of the victims. Uh, if you haven't followed us already, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Detectives. Again, like I said earlier, you can go on to, to Patreon, patreon.com slash True Crime and Cocktails, where you can sign up for a lot of fun bonus content. We have so much fun over there. And uh, Christy, do you want to talk about the next episode? Because I know it's one you're very jazzed oh. about. I am jazzed yes. about it. On the next True Crime and Cocktails, The Glee Curse. That's right. People are saying, what does that mean? Well, there was a television show called Glee. You all remember it. And if you don't, Google it. Um, but there, of course, is a very large amount of deaths Connect, mysterious deaths some mysterious some less mysterious but there's a lot of deaths connected to that show correct there is a lot of true crime related things connected to that show well i guess that's all we're gonna say for now so tune in next week for that can't wait to learn more about the glee curse you know as always christy oxborough always brings the goods and we are all lucky to be able to uh, benefit from it uh, Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Goodnight, people. Goodnight, everybody. Ever wanted to hear the story of the time that Melissa Fumero from Brooklyn Nine-Nine's kid had a two-hour-long tantrum that drove generations of their family to weep? Or maybe the story of SNL's Bobby Moynihan's kid, who found random pizza in a playground sandbox and ate it? If so, you should check out Why Mommy Drinks, a weekly comedy podcast where I, Betsy Stover, talk to interesting people like Richard Jefferson from the NBA or Rachel Bloom from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend about a time that their kids broke them down into a shell of their former selves or maybe even drove them to drink, but in a fun way. If you have kids, this show will make you feel less alone. And if you don't have kids, you're going to be so glad you don't have kids. Listen on Campfire Media, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. My mommy drinks. Campfire. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. 
Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.